You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center broadcasting live from Silicon Beach here in our office in Santa Monica, California. Um, it's a beautiful day here, and I hope it is wherever you're listening. Uh, we have a great show for you today. We're going to cover two very interesting topics on Internet. Um, and the first is the revival of online gambling. Um, they looked at one point with the passage of the Yu-Gi-Oh, um, the, uh, the, the anti-online gambling law that passed in the 2003 that online gambling was dead but we we have a, a special guest to tell us about its revival another than um, frank Farenkoff, who is the, the head of the american gaming association we'll give you a little more information about him in a second in the second half hour we have a, a return guest and a, a a good friend from of the show her name is delphine Haglin, and she is the um Washington Director of Reporters Without Borders, and they've just released their annual Enemies of the Internet report, and she's going to tell us about that, um, as well as uh, we're going to talk maybe about some some promising signs, possibly of a of a, a Burmese spring, maybe. Um, but before that, we're going to speak, we have Frank Farenkoff on the line, and Frank is a, is a Washington, I guess, an American legend. Um, he is the was the chairman of the Republican National Committee for um, Ronald Reagan's eight years in the White House and six of Ronald Reagan's eight years in the White House and led the party through successful presidential elections in 84 and 88. And he's the co-chairman of the Commission on Presidential Debates, which he's done a remarkable job in, in making that an in, uh, institution when it wasn't, um, when he first started. Um, finally, um, He's served in his current role as president of the American Gaming Association um, for 17 and a half years, and that will be coming to an end in June. So um, he's definitely been part of a lot of things that have done very well while he's been part of them. Frank, are you with us? Uh, yes, thanks, Ben. Pleasure being with you. Um, we, we were talking earlier and uh, about the, the revival of online gambling, and a lot of that stems from a Justice Department opinion 
that um, the, the, the federal laws on gambling do not restrict intrastate online gambling. And so since that ruling, um, we've seen a couple of states move forward with online gambling. Um, you know, we've had Delaware was the second, like Iowa was the first, and now New Jersey just recently stepped in. And um, so do, do you see this as signs of a, a revival of online gambling? Well, I, I don't think it's so much a, a question of revival because, remember, uh, even before the Justice Department opinion and for at least the last 10 or 15 years, uh, you know, 10 million or so Americans have been going online um, and, and wagering on offshore websites. True. And, um, uh, I mean, so th- this is not something that's really new. What is new here is, uh, as you said, the Justice Department reversed a decades-long uh, position that, uh, the 1961 Wire Act prohibits all forms of internet gambling, and uh, what they did on on the December 23rd of 2011 was to say, now it only prohibits sports wagering, and uh, all other types of uh, wagering are, are not covered by the Wire Act. So uh, that has uh, done a couple of things. Uh, a, a number of states have looked at it, particularly their state lotteries, and uh, and the state lotteries are under, and their lottery directors are under, you know, a lot of pressure to develop. Uh, more revenue sources uh, when we're still in a situation where realistically the unemployment rate in this country is probably 15%. Uh, and so they took it as an opportunity to what I call perhaps the largest uh, increase in legal gambling uh, in this country's history, either by way of the, the lotteries themselves or private licensing uh, in state after state. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you talked about online, it's illegal only as to online sports gambling. And, um, but this, you know, this time of year, there's, there's hardly any gambling on sports at all. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. There was a federal commission created in the, in the late nineties to study gambling in America. And the testimony, uh, that's put forth in, in that final report that, that came out in, in the middle of 1999, quoting uh, testimony from FBI and other law enforcement sources, that back then it said that there was bet every year on sports in the United States up to $360 billion, that's with a B, dollars. And less than 1% of that was legally bet either in Nevada sports books or uh, in the paramutual industry. So I, I hate to think what the number might be now as we head into March Madness. Yeah, I'm just looking at Google now. It's interesting because you know there's, there's the millions that are, that are spent, and you know, I mentioned earlier last week on the show that it just struck me that I was at a Washington law firm, and our managing partner faxed in his uh, his entry, which I, I as, a, as a young lawyer I realized that that's like <laughs> that's triggering like four different federal statutes. But um, that's right. There's something here that uh, they estimate. Um, that it costs businesses millions in product, 134 million in lost productivity from workers glued to TV during March Madness, <laughs> and and taking time to fill out their brackets. Exactly. Yeah, that the NCAA gets bigger, it's harder. Now, um, in your organization, you with the American Gaming Association, yes. um, is, is there um, do you have a, a difficulty or a challenge in getting your members to agree on online gambling? Because to, is there a view or was there a view that at one point that it, online gambling in essence competes with you know, offline gambling? No, there was, never, there, there was never that view. Uh, but up until about three or four years ago, 
for years, our position was, and I've said it a thousand times, I know it by heart, I, can, it's a, I said for years, the American Gaming Association is opposed to all forms of online gaming because we do not believe that technology exists to properly regulate it with appropriate law enforcement oversight. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I said that. And the you reason that we said that <laughs> was also because our regulators, you know, were regulated by, by the states, whether you're talking about Nevada, New Jersey, right. Mississippi, Illinois. And the regulators back in, in the early days of, uh, of this century, 2000, uh, were very, very skeptical as to whether or not they could properly regulate it. Uh, our view changed dramatically when we saw that more and more countries abroad and first world nations, as opposed to, you know, the Isle of Man or Gibraltar or some of those places, when we had places like Great Britain and France, uh, Italy and other first world nations showed that with uh, geolocation, with biometrics and so forth, you can ascertain and, and provide control that we changed our position. Now, we changed our position, however, only to support leg federal legislation uh, that would allow online poker uh, and online poker only. And uh, that has still been the position uh, of the, and is the position of the AGA uh, today. Now, um, there, other than Sheldon Adelson, uh, who has been consistently opposed to uh, all forms of uh, online gaming, although that's his personal view and not the position of Las Vegas Sands, because they are members uh, of our uh, of our association. Uh, everyone else is very strongly uh, in favor of that legislation, which we were very hopeful was going to be introduced by a very conservative Republican named John Kyle, from a senator from Arizona who's now left the Senate, and uh, Senator uh, Harry Reid of Nevada, but they never actually introduced that legislation. Right. There was a lot of talk about that last fall, and it just didn't happen. Um, now, in, in terms of getting um, online gambling and moving forward with it mm -hmm. um, at the state level, do you think that now the state regulators have the adequate tools and, and and also, why why the distinction between poker and other other forms? Well, first of all, with regard to the exception for poker, uh, when we were putting forth uh, you know our, our arguments on the Hill for uh, uh, for legislation to authorize it, I can be very candid with you that we felt that the only appetite that there might be in any chance of passing any legislation was for poker only, in that poker is is uh, conceptually different in that it's a game that has a long history uh, in the United States, uh, in, the, in the history of this country. Uh, it's acceptable uh, socially. It's great families have poker parties. There's poker games uh, every night here in Washington with members of the Senate and the House and some former Supreme Court justices uh, were fully supportive. Plus, it's not a House-banked game. In other words, you know, you're not playing against Caesars. You're not playing against right. MGM. You're not, uh, you know, they're taking their drag on the pot before it goes in. And uh, if we're playing, uh, I'm playing against you, Bennett, and you're playing against me. We're not playing against the House. So that's what, how the, the, the bill was, was crafted. And we were able to gain support of people like Senator Kyle, who fundamentally is, is anti-gaming, on the basis that it's the lesser of two evils. Getting a bill through that just allows poker is better than just letting anybody uh, go forward with online gaming 
with uh, any type of gain, as we're seeing uh, with the legislation that passed in Delaware, that we're not only talking about poker, we're talking about games that look like slot machines, uh, any casino-type games, whether you're talking roulette, blackjack, etc., which, as I said, would be the largest expansion of, of legal gaming uh, in, in this country's history. So that's why we were able to gather support of people like Senator Kyle uh, and others. And uh, uh, Joe Barton, a congressman from Texas who has introduced the, uh, poker legislation in the last two sessions of Congress and who's studying doing it again right now, Senator Reid has also said that he's hopeful to introduce something. So We'll just have to wait and see as we go forward. As you know, there are perhaps more important things on the agenda of the United <laughs> States House and Senate with the economic uh, uh, things we face in this country than, than poker, but we'll have to see what happens. Now, in, in terms of the, the advancement at the state level, and as you mentioned, Delaware is more than just poker, does that hurt your ability to get federal legislation or make it easier? Because no, I think I, Actually, I think it may be easier, Bennett. That's a very good question because – uh, I think historically, uh, in you know, when, when you when you start talking about uh, about gaming, it it's not a partisan issue. Uh, in the Republican Party, it tends to be those uh, on on the farther to the right who, because of moral religion reason, uh, religious reasons, view gaming as a sin. In the Democratic Party, it tends to be those on the far left who uh, aren't that concerned about sinning, but who don't believe people are smart enough to make their own decisions about how to spend their own money, and the government's got to protect them, self, uh, protect them from themselves. So you, you have both right and left who are opposed to anything having to do with gaming. Now, a lot of those people who were reluctant uh, to consider a poker bill over the last uh, two sessions are now saying, wait a minute, look what's happening in these states. This is a rapid, uh, you know, uh, open expansion. And I think they're taking a second look now. Now, the danger of this for what's going on in the states also is there, there is a very, very uh, strong group, particularly in the Republican Party, who would just as soon go back and outlaw all forms of gaming on the Internet. In other words, not even have a poker exception. And uh, I would not be a bit surprised if, if a poker legislation doesn't get moving that you would see that sort of legislation that would, uh, would just totally uh, outlaw all forms of Internet gaming in this country. That could happen. Now, in, in terms of uh, right now you have three states, what, what do you think is a likely um, point where we'll be, say, at the end of the year or the end of next year in terms of the number of states that have it? Absent federal legislation, I think you're going to uh, you're going to see a tremendous rush to look at this. I mean, we already know that New York and Illinois and Louisiana and other states uh, have either legislation that's already been introduced or there's plans to introduce it. California has been kicking this around for ten years. Right. Uh, the problems there have had more to do with. Uh, uh, Native American tribes disagreeing among themselves, along with some of the card rooms and the paramutual folks. Uh, so, you know, absent uh, federal legislation, I think you'll see more and more states that are going to uh, go forward. And they'll go forward in a, in a couple of different ways. Some may only go poker. If you, if you look at what Nevada did, they only went with poker. Uh, New Jersey and, uh, uh, and as we've discussed, Delaware have gone uh, with other casino-type games. So I think you'll see a diversity across the country. Uh, different states will go different ways. And then you'll also see diversity as to whether or not it's going to be run in that state, those states that enacted by the state lottery, which means it would shut out any private companies from mm -hmm. coming in and offering uh, their services, or whether or not they will open it up in a particular state uh, and let 
companies that, that want to provide Internet services bid against each other for, for the right. So I think you'll see a, a, a tremendous rush. I, I don't want to say whether it'll be 10 states or 20 states, but uh, you know, I think you'll see a, a, a tremendous interest uh, expanding. Well, you, you raise a, you, your answer. You know, kind of raised a, in, the interesting thought about you know, states being the laboratories of democracy, and, and Congress often you know allows states to um, tinker and and try different solutions before sometimes a federal solution is devised. Do you think that you know Congress might want to take a hands-off approach and see? How this develops at the state level, or yeah, you, you, that, that, there, there, no question. It probably will. Some will take that, but I mean, when when you're dealing with the internet, I mean, it is clear uh, that if you start to get into intra-state activity rather than, uh, or excuse me, interstate rather than intra-state. In other words, right now the legislation in the three states we've talked about provides for intra-state. It's within the boundaries of the state. Right which as far as I'm concerned clearly meets the, the mandate of the Tenth Amendment, uh, that you know, each state has the right to determine whether or not they're going to have gambling, if so, what kind, and how they're going to regulate taxes, etc. But when you start crossing state lines, uh, for lawyers in the audience, I mean, I think you immediately get into Commerce Clause problems. Right. And then in many states, particularly those that just go for poker only, as you know, in order to have successful online poker, you need liquidity. You need a lot of players. Uh, and, uh, you know, Nevada, my old home state of Nevada, uh, doesn't have enough people to have that liquidity. So if Nevada then tried to make a deal with California, for example, a state with a tremendous uh, amount of people so that there would be sufficient liquidity uh, so that there could be generated profit uh, from the online poker, the question is, uh, would Congress have to approve? Article 1, Section 10 of the United States Constitution specifically provides that uh, interstate agreements uh, have to be approved by Congress. Now, what's happened historically for about the past 20 years is Congress has ignored, uh, ignored agreements between states. Most of them involved electrical grids or power agreements and so forth, and Congress, rather than acting or uh, by uh, approving or disapproving, has just ignored them. But as I said, with these elements in both political parties, if you had a group of states that were going to do something uh, along this line to gather together for interstate clearly signals going across state lines you might very well have a movement in congress to uh to have hearings and consider whether or not to approve or disapprove that now it, in looking at uh, online gambling versus offline gambling and one thing is you mentioned poker earlier and for, for listeners poker often comes up as something that should be allowed because the, what makes ga online gambling or offline gambling illegal is the, there are three elements usually to the offense of what is a, having a lottery. You have to have a, a has to be a game of chance, um, and then you know there has to be money involved. Mm -hmm. And the, the view of poker in some in some places is that poker isn't a game of chance; it's a game of skill. And so, therefore, it shouldn't be regulated. As well, that's an argument that, that a lot of people have made. Uh, it's not only here in this country, but almost every court, and clearly the higher appellate courts who have looked at that, have agreed that it's a game of skill, but they also add it's also a game of chance. And then it falls within the the mandate of, uh, of the definition of gambling. So, uh, But uh, you know, there's many, many people who hold that view. I, I you know, especially if you're if you're good. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> um I, I tend to be on the game of chance side. But um and, and looking at it, 
have you, we've had some experience now of um, maybe a decade or so of online gambling. And is there any um, studies or evidence to show that you know the a lot of people object to gambling because you know the, the problems of addiction and you know what the consequences that result from that. Have there, has there been anything to show that you know, there is any difference between online gambling or offline gambling? No, most of the studies that have looked at it, there's been nothing as definitive as, as some of them that, uh, you know, studies that have been done in brick-and-mortar history, but both here in the United States and abroad. But one thing is clear, that, and it wasn't clear 17 and a half years ago when I took this job at the at president and CEO of the American Gaming Association, was the whole question of how many people uh, meet the uh, the diagnosis qualifications of the American uh, Psychiatric Institute for being pathological gamblers. And we now know from studies done here, but primarily work done by Harvard Medical School's Division on Addictions, uh, and studies that have been done worldwide, that we know no matter where you are, it's about 1% of the population that can't gamble responsibly. And these are people who uh, will commit a crime, who will lose all their money, who will break up marriages, it will cause bankruptcy. It, it's, a, it, it's a very, very difficult thing. We know that it's 1%. We also know that of that 1%, uh, 60% or so, the experts tell us, suffer from what's called comorbidity which means that gambling is not their only problem. They have problems with drugs, alcohol, mm. uh, uh, etc. They have addictive personalities. So uh, that's why our industry uh, has, uh, for the past 15 years, uh, and we've been commended by Congress and others as the industry that stepped up to the plate, put money where our mouth is to uh, finance uh, and help uh, peer-reviewed research uh, into how we can help people who have that problem. And uh, but you know even as gaming is spread across the country, uh, we've seen that more and more because you know you have some form of legal gambling in every state in the United States except two. Uh, it's only Hawaii and Utah uh, that have no form of legal gambling. But uh, the studies that have been done by the scientific community indicate that even though it is spread, it's still about one percent wherever we are. So that argument uh, you know is 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 important for that one percent. And I think the industry has an obligation to do something concerning it, as we are. Uh, but it's uh, it's a false argument to say that if online gaming is somehow legalized in this country, uh, we're going to have an increase in in uh, pathological gambling. I don't think there's any evidence for that. Well, we're going to take a short break, but I bet that when we come back, we're going to have Frank, and we'll, we'll wrap up um, this segment. And after these messages, uh, you're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Time now for another exciting episode of Face of Analytics. Brought to you by AnalyticsSEO.com. In our last adventure, our hero was fending off his evil nemesis, Rhino the Algo. <laughs> That ruthless rhino has updated the algorithm again, and our website is falling down the ranking fast. Have no fear. Use our automated SEO tool to stay updated and to monitor your site with detailed reports. Or use our multi-site project management tool to manage all of your sites to stay on top. Take it from our fearless friend and be your own SEO hero with AnalyticsSEO.com. Aim clear. This is how you sell with social. Have you tried to do CPA conversions using social PPC and failed? <laughs> You're not alone. These days, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube require true specialists to dominate. <laughs> Aim clear. <laughs> 
brings definitive psychographic targeting, bleeding edge creative, and killer content amplification to the social advertising table. Aim clear. This is how you sell with social. Aim clear. This is how you sell with social. Building better search engine rankings takes the right formula. Tracking those rankings is super simple. All you need is authoritylabs.com. Authority Labs uses automated daily rank tracking tools to monitor your site's performance or leverage their API to build your own tools. No matter what animal-labeled algorithms affect your ranking, you should be using Authority Labs. Unlimited users for no additional cost and white labeling can help keep your clients updated and save countless hours of creating reports. Whether you're running sites with just a few or millions of keywords, what you need is AuthorityLabs.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back. Um, we have Frank Farencourt, the president of the um, American Gaming Association, and he was just mentioning that he's retiring at the end of 17 and a half years as, as head of that organization. Frank, tell us a, what, a little bit about the AGA. Well, the AGA was really uh, formed uh, in the mid-90s uh, by the uh, brick-and-mortar industry as a result of a proposal that was floated on Capitol Hill for a 4% gross receipts tax, federal gross receipts tax, on all gaming revenue in the U.S. And uh, it didn't last very long because 30 governors signed a letter to President Clinton saying that uh, you know their states depended on uh, the revenues from their lotteries and, and, and paramutual industry and casinos, uh, Native American casinos, etc. Uh, and it was dropped. But it sort of was a, a clarion call to, to the industry uh, that they better have representation here uh, in Washington. Uh, and uh, the AGA is not just the operators uh, like Caesars and mm-hmm. uh, and Las Vegas Sands and MGM, uh, etc., but also manufacturers, uh, uh, IGT, International Game Technologies, WMS, uh, Bally's, manufacturers of gaming equipment. And so the association was formed back in 95, and they came to me because I'm originally from Nevada, and uh, I represented uh, a lot of companies before Nevada Gaming Authorities over the years. Uh, I stayed here in Washington after uh, I retired from being chairman of the party after President Reagan left, and uh, to do it and get it started for a year. I agreed to do it for a year, and that was 17 and a half years ago. So I'm going to. Uh, it'll be 18 years when I step down on on June 30. Uh, I'm not retiring. I'm just going to move on to something else. 18 years of doing the same thing, I don't think is healthy for an individual or the uh, uh, the, the company he works for. So it's time for some new blood, new thinking, and so we're looking forward to. Uh, I'm looking forward to welcoming somebody else in uh, in this job uh, uh, come July one. My father took a, a six-month job that lasted 29 years. <laughs> oh, wow! So I know what you mean. Um, now, in the short time we have left. Yes. Um, First of all, congratulations. Today is the anniversary of the founding of the Republican Party uh-huh. um, that, that you once so incapably chaired. And, uh, but you now have um, also played a role as, um, as on the, uh, the debate commission, the commission on presidential debates. Yes. And we were talking offline about the debates. And um, when you came on, when you were, for example, when you were on the, the Reagan campaign, at that time, there was a gap from the Kennedy-Nixon um, debate in 60 to um, you know, the Carter-Reagan debate in 80. You know, that, there hadn't been any debate. No, actually, it was, it was from 1960. You know, everyone remembers the modern 
well, I'm sorry, of Ford the Carter, television yeah. debates. Yeah, because Ford uh, debated Jimmy Carter in 1976, but we went 16 years uh, without a presidential debate because Richard Nixon uh, and I had talked to President Nixon about it at length. Uh, the 1960 debate was uh, with JFK. Uh, was very traumatic for him, so there was no way he was going to debate uh, when he ran twice uh, for president thereafter. Lyndon Johnson was not going to let Barry Goldwater get up on the stage with him. So uh, Jerry Ford really didn't have much choice uh, in 1976 because he was behind in the polls because, if you remember, he had pardoned Nixon. Yeah. And so uh, the, the debate was take, took place in 1976. We were not involved then. We didn't start until 1988 that we began. Uh, and uh, then President uh, Reagan was always ready to debate. He uh, he loved the debate process, and uh, and then uh, also uh, Bill Clinton uh, was very very uh, happy to debate as was as President Obama was the last two times. So it, it, when I asked you offline, was really you know, at what point did you realize that this was now an institution? And do you, like, for example, do you think a candidate could get win the nomination and say, no, I'm not going to debate? No, I don't think so anymore. Uh, I think the American people uh, uh, have reached a point. Uh, we know, uh, in fact, some uh, polling that was done right after the debates this this uh, last election uh, in 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 uh, last year, 2012, uh, mirrored what we've seen for about the past 10 years. That about 65 to 70 percent of the American public say that the presidential general election, now I want to differentiate between the primaries, we have nothing to do with the primary debates, we do the general election debates, that uh, 65 to 70% said that debates are very important, uh, not the only criteria, but very important in who they, who they vote for. So I don't think today that, uh, that a candidate uh, could win the election by saying they're not going to debate. Now, uh, President uh, George Herbert Walker Bush uh, did that for a while in 1992. He refused to debate. You remember back then it was not only uh, Bill Clinton, but Ross Perot. Yes. And it wasn't until uh, Clinton supporters started showing up at President Bush's rallies dressed in yellow chicken costumes that he was uh, forced at the last minute to agree to debate. But I, I, So I don't think today that a candidate could get by without, uh, w- without agreeing to debate. Yeah, I mean that that campaign. I was involved with the Clinton campaign, and you know, but people forget that there was a point when Clinton was in third in that race. Um, no, that's right. That's absolutely right. And um, I, I really want to thank you for for coming on board. And uh, but I have to ask you one quick question, sure. since it is pertinent to you know, your role. Um, have you submitted your bracket, and who is your final four? <laughs> I do. I, I did submit my my bracket. Uh, out of the Midwest, I have Duke coming through. Uh, uh, it'd be a tough game with Louisville, but I think they can uh, they, they can uh, carry that Midwest bracket. I have in the West, uh, I have Ohio State beating Gonzaga to get into the Final Four. Uh, in the South, I have Kansas beating Georgetown to get in the Final Four, and then I have Indiana defeating Miami in a good game. Uh, so the Final Four is uh, uh, Duke um, playing Ohio State, and I give the nod to Duke. And I have Kansas playing Indiana, and I give the nod to Indiana, and I have Duke beating Indiana for the national championship. Well, there you have it, everyone. If you haven't submitted yours, that's from that's from the legends. Um, Frank, I want to thank you. It's been a pleasure um, talking to you both online and off, and um, you, know, you definitely have distinguished yourself um, in in both politics and in, with the AGA, and uh, it's really been an honor to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Uh, anytime, Benny. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Do we um 
our next guest is um, Delphine Haglund, and she has um, been on the show before. Um, we we talked um, last year about the um, Reporters Without Borders. They had their annual um, Enemies of the Internet report, and um, we um, and we, we we outlined that report. And she talked about you know, what what Reporters Without Borders is doing. And it's been um, they're a very active group in um, in promoting a free press, and um, both in the United in all countries really. And so, um, in every year they come out with a, a report on the enemies of the internet, and that is part of an effort to um, to pro- make people aware of online censorship and um, they have actually international day against online censorship and we're going to take a short break when we come back we'll have Delphine uh, Haugen um, with Reporters Without Borders you listen to the Cyber Law and Business Report stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief ask for our sponsors if you're like most digital marketers, you've probably got conversion rate optimization at the top of your list of priorities for 2013. Conversion rate optimization is one of the most effective ways to increase revenue and grow profits. You can master your website conversion optimization skills at Conversion Conference San Francisco 2013. Conversion Conference San Francisco 2013 is the only digital marketing conference entirely focused on getting more web visitors through your conversion funnel. Learn how to create persuasive content, design landing pages that trigger your visitors to action, and convert blog readers into customers. Conversion Conference San Francisco 2013, April 15th to the 17th, is quickly selling out. Register with discount code WMFM for $100 off your registration. Sign up today for Conversion Conference San Francisco 2013 at conversionconference.com. That's conversionconference.com. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use certifiedknowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. The SES Conference and Expo is making a springtime stop to New York City, March 25th through the 28th. SES New York 2013 is moving to a brand new venue in the heart of Times Square at the New York Marriott Marquis. Register now at SESConference.com. SES New York 2013 features some of the best and brightest minds in search and social marketing with keynote addresses by top-level executives from Google, Twitter, ESPN, and more. SES New York 2013 will also feature a loaded expo hall and Texpo pavilion. On-site training by the ClickZ Academy, WebmasterRadio.fm's annual search bash, and so much more. SES New York 2013 at the New York Marriott Marquis in the heart of Times Square, March 25th through the 28th. Register now at SESConference.com. 
The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and we have Delphine with us. Delphine, are you there? Hi, how are you? Thank you for coming back to the show. Um, Delphine is the Washington Director for um, Reporters Without Borders, and it's uh, an international organization. Are you affiliated with Doctors Without Borders? Uh, Actually, uh, people ask me the question often. So we are not. We are kind of cuisine, I guess, because Doctors Without Borders and Reporters Without Borders are both French organizations, and they were created at the same time. And actually, there's a small story uh, who linked each other. Actually, when Doctors Without Borders was created and when um, they went to Africa to help uh, different uh, countries to fight against famine, the founder of Doctors Without Borders were actually enraged by that there was no uh, press coverage of what was happening in Africa. And in a sense, we were created to answer that call because we, and it's not just by sending Western journalists when there is a crisis, but by helping local journalists to do their job every day in a crazy situation and in authoritarian regime. And that's our mission to help uh, journalists all over the world to do their work. Now, Doctors Without Borders has won the Nobel Prize. Yes. Right. Okay. One day um, we will win it too. <laughs> and I, and I, I'm quite, I'm sure that it's a possibility, um, particularly in light of your, your recent work. And one thing that um, your organization has done, as you mentioned, is had have an annual Enemies of the Internet. And what makes someone an enemy of the Internet? So um, uh, what we qualify in our report as an enemy of the Internet was, first of all, the state which were uh, monitoring uh, online activity, but also filtering uh, internet connection in their own countries. So since many years, we were publishing list of countries which were, uh, um, as we say, enemies of the internet. But this year, for the first time, we also uh, focus on five states which are conducting systematic online surveillance that results in serious human rights violations, like Syria, China, Iran, Bahrain, and Vietnam. But also for the first time, as I said, we also focus on the five companies that would qualify uh, enemies of the Internet because uh, we consider that actually the companies who are selling products to authoritarian governments um, to commit violation of human rights and are actually like kind of digital mercenaries. And in this report, we highlight Gamma, Trovicor, Hacking Team, Amazis, and Blue Coat, who are all Western companies, American, French, Italian, British. And we consider that when a company is selling filtering software or monitoring software to Libya, to Syria, or to Iran, they have to be... Uh, taken responsible, accountable for the tools, the arms they are giving to these governments who are known to violate human rights. Now, we actually had someone on um, a couple of weeks ago to talk about Blue Coat. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they, did, they did some research and, 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 and kind of documented some of what you were talking about. But 
just to make clear, uh, technology itself is neutral. Technology yes. doesn't do anything bad or good unless you know it, it can have uses that can be bad or good. And mm-hmm. you know, so the and highlighting you know, these companies that offer this technology, it's the the crime isn't the technology; it, it's who they're getting in bed with. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The technology is neutral, and uh, filtering or monitoring internet can be useful and uh, should be uh, useful in many cases to uh, try to track a pedophile or terrorist. We completely understand that, but you, uh, we have also to to adapt um, our behavior when we are talking about governments who are known to arrest their dissidents, their opposants, and when a company is giving the tool to a, a country like Iran or Syria or Libya to monitor the online activities, to monitor the Skype conversation, to monitor the Gmail exchange, uh, we the companies have to adapt their behavior to this uh, local uh, situation and to understand that the consequences of selling monitoring software like that will have huge consequences in human rights uh, regard. Now, of the five companies you named, have any of them responded to their inclusion in the report? Uh, actually, we are still waiting uh, to hear from the companies, and there's two companies that we we cannot have a communication with them right now because we filed a complaint against them at the OECD level for the technology they sold to Bahrain. And the OECD um, is the Organization of Economic Cooperation Development. It's a, a kind of a consortium of the leading um, Western developed nations. Yes, uh, we hope that first initiative, uh, this legal initiative, uh, could uh, bring attention to to this uh, monitoring market, but also could un- encourage um, Western governments to adopt legislation to control more the export of uh, digital arms. Actually, the U.S. and uh, the European Union already um, forbid the export of this software to Iran and to Syria, and we hope that they can extend this export control to other countries. And um, actually, we we advocate for European governments to take an harmonized approach to control the export of surveillance technology. And also, we encourage the Obama administration to adopt the legislation uh, like the Global Online Freedom Act or more the technology sold by American uh, companies. And the Global Online Freedom Act, that's the act that's been introduced practically every Congress for about 10 years now by um, Representative Chris Smith from New Jersey. And um, yes. I don't know if it's been offered yet this year or not. But um, uh, It's still a proposition, uh, and as you said, it's uh, it's hard to be adopted. <laughs> and uh, the, even if uh, the hopes are thinner and thinner, I think we have to continue to, to push for the controls of export uh, of surveillance software. 
And, and is that a matter of not necessarily having the laws in place because they are in place? It's just a matter of enforcing them? Sorry, I, I, could you repeat your question? Sure. Um, you, you said you, your focus now, given that legislation may not be likely, but your focus is now more on getting uh, countries to use export controls to, to restrict um, this type of technology from getting in the wrong hands. And so is it your view that the, the, the legal framework is just exists, it's just a matter of governments enforcing the law? I'm sorry, I hear you uh, badly. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I guess the question is, is um, you, you, you're, you're, you're focusing and you're trying to get governments to um, enforce uh, their export control laws or to apply export control laws to prevent the technology from getting in countries like Syria or Bahrain, right? Yes. And and so is it your view that the the law is already the the, the law already prohibits this conduct, or do you need more laws to strengthen it? We need more laws to to strengthen that control, and because we we want that um, monitoring software could be considered as real arms, real. Um, tools which could hurt people and so that's why we are pushing because for the moment there's no no control at all on uh, how um, uh, authoritarian regime or dictatorship can have access to this technology that they use to arrest journalists and citizens journalists so yes we are, we are advocating for more uh, legislation to control this export it's an amazing, you know, just kind of playing um, in my head your your response, and um, what's what's interesting is that if you had said the same thing maybe 15 years ago, that um, you know we need to treat software as a weapon, I think people would have been astounded by it. But you know now, you know, it, people are realizing that you know with cyber war and all these other aspects. That this is definitely as can be as much a weapon as anything else. Yeah, and I think the news are bringing us every day new cases, which uh, uh, makes this cyber war more real. There was the New York Times hacking um, in the beginning of the year. But I can give you many examples. I can give you the example of a, um, a Syrian activist who was uh, arrested end of um, 2011, Karim Temur, and when he was um, interrogated, actually, he was shown m around 1,000 pages of transcripts of all his Skype conversation and exchange of documents with wow. all his contacts. That's just an example of what the Syrian government is able to do right now. And actually, it's not an hazard if at the beginning of the uprising in Syria, in February 2011, after years of blocking Skype, Facebook, and Twitter, the Syrian government gave access again to uh, the Syrian population to this website because they wanted them to use them because they were able to monitor what was happening on Facebook and Twitter. So for the Syrian government to give access to social networks during the uprising was the best way to know what the young population, what the opposite, what the dissidents were doing. It's interesting, so, yeah, the, yeah the, the whole concept of that there's some book, Hide in Plain Sight, where they want, you know, this is the opposite. They, they want you to come out so they can watch you. 
Mm-hmm. Now that's that's I think really striking, and uh, so when uh, actually you have to be careful if if you are in Iran or in Syria or in Bahrain, and for many months a website was blocked, and if suddenly oh I can access it, it's not an hazard, or you have to understand what what it means. Right. Be careful what you wish for; you might get it, and then it'll be monitored. Um, now. This is obviously very important stuff, but I want to talk. There's certain hopeful things that I've seen that you guys have posted, and one is it appears that you guys are somehow hopeful about um, a Burmese spring, even though um, Burma is listed as one of the enemies of the internet. Yeah, um, actually, the improvement of the situation regarding uh, press freedom and online freedom is amazing in Burma. So we can, it, it's it's always good to not talk about the really sad and awful situation. But yes, thank you for bringing that. Uh, in some countries, we no violence. Uh, freedom could improve. And when uh, you, you mentioned the case of Burma, uh, there's no more journalists in jail in Burma. There's no more prior censorship uh, system for the press in Burma. And uh, we hope this uh, in this spring, uh, this uh, freedom spring, will uh, continue to improve the general situation in Burma. There are still many challenges and many difficulties, but uh, things to, things to, seems to be a very uh, going in the good direction. Now, one other area to keep an upbeat note is um, you also recently, in conjunction with the Enemies of the Internet um, report, you named a netizen of the year, a gentleman from Vietnam. Can you tell us about him? Um, I don't know him uh, personally, but uh, for, and you know, it's it's, uh, important for us to just say that um, the award uh, was uh, giving to him because he was uh, elected by Internet users all over the world. More than uh, 70,000 people went to discover the awardees, and he was he was selected. So actually we were very, in a sense, satisfied to see that the situation in Vietnam uh, brings attention to, to the Internet users all over the world. And um, he's... He's a free man. He was able to come to Paris to receive his award, and we were very, very proud to to make him come to Paris to receive this award because he's a very uh, talented and courageous blogger who is um, uh, describing the situation in Vietnam with a, a lot of uh, of courage and a, a lot of rigorousness. And when I'm saying courage, I just want to highlight that right now there are at least two journalists who are jailed in in Vietnam and more than 30 netizens. By netizens, I mean people who are not journalists but who were uh, expressing themselves online and who are jailed for that. There's a a real war against bloggers in Vietnam and the Vietnam government has uh, implemented... um, really a precise legal arms, if I can say, to be able to jail um, the the bloggers. Um, we only have a few minutes left, Delphine. So if by the time we have left, if people want to go download the report or learn more about um, 
you know, the organization, where should they go? Uh, of course, they can go to our website, which is uh, Reporters Without Borders. It's a website uh, in English, French, Spanish, uh, and Russian, so I'm sure everybody could find um, this information in their online grid. So if they're interested in this issue, uh, they can go to read our big report, uh, which was published on March 12th on the enemies of the Internet. But I also invite them to go to another website, which is called wefightcensorship.org, wefightcensorship.org, where we publish regularly tips for journalists or citizen journalists to teach them how to protect their communication online, how to protect their data, how to encrypt their data, how to encrypt their communication. And we also publish on this website, uh, wefightcentorship.org, the censored content of the journalists we are defending. So when we are saying, oh, a Vietnamese uh, blogger was jailed because he wrote something on corruption, you can actually find this article translated in English online. So um, we are very proud of this project which can make, uh, which aims to make uh, the censorship uh, uh, inefficient in a sense. Well, thank you very much. Um, Rafine, well, I should say, uh, merci beaucoup and uh, à bientôt. Um, and uh, I, I thank you for coming back. It's been a pleasure. And everyone, this is uh, an important group, and they've done great work in, in terms of highlighting um, global attempts at um, Internet censorship. And so definitely go to their website, check it out. If you're a blogger, particularly if you're a blogger outside the United States, you should take a, take a look because um, your life could be on the line. And Delphine, thank you again, as always. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. So um, we only have a few minutes left. I just want to do a few shout-outs. Um, today actually was the, is the anniversary of the founding of the Republican Party, so it was perfect that we had Frank on. Um, it was purely coincidental. Um, today is the day John and Yoko got married in Gibraltar near Spain, as they say in the song. And um, today is also um, Anna Doyle's 89th birthday. Unfortunately, she didn't live to this day, but um, cheers to her and cheers to Myra Roberts, the um, internationally renowned um, hair designer in um, Silver Lake, California. But um, that's all we have for today. I want to thank all all my guests again, and um, I hope if you're listening, um, you consider getting our mobile app so you can take us with it wherever you go. And um, and please do tell me where you go. <laughs> Postcards are welcome. But um, thanks again to everyone, and we'll be back next week with another show. Um, but we're going to be continuing some of these discussions on online gambling. We're going to be talking a little bit later on about the whole international trade dispute between the United States and Antigua, which has really become almost like a, a, a TV movie, the way that's twists and turns. But um, as it stands now, Antigua may be authorized to start um, becoming an online pirate um, and and selling U.S. Um, goods without paying license and all royalties, and so that's a very controversial um, matter. So we'll but we'll be back um, next week, 
This is Bennett Kelly with Internet Law Center. I'm here from the heart of Silicon Beach in Santa Monica. Good luck with your brackets. May the best team win. And uh, we'll see you next week right here on Cyber Law and Business Report. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.